Discussing Alban Planinga and knowledge in Christian belief. Specifically, we're going to be answering several questions. Basically, can Christian belief be considered knowledge? And if it can be considered knowledge, how exactly does that come about? Does it come through arguments or from some other area? But before I delve into that and try answering that question, I'm going to give a bit of background on Alban Planinga and his reformed epistemology. Now, my guess is that for most of y'all, Alban Planinga probably isn't a household name. And that's largely because he's currently in his 90s and doesn't really have a pretty popular presence on YouTube. However, he has had a very historic career and is one of the best known uh, in academia, best known Christian philosophers of the past century. And he uh, got his undergrad in philosophy at Calvin College, taught there for a while, and then had a pretty long stint at Notre Dame. But the reason he's most known is because when he began getting into philosophy, basically the entire academy was more or less entirely secular. And it wasn't just that it was entirely secular, it was that Christianity was snubbed and looked down upon. It was not a respectable opinion to hold at all. However, when he got involved, that quickly began to change. In fact, Timothy Keller in his book, The Reason for God, discusses that some estimate that apparently now 10 to 15% of all philosophers in academia or Orthodox Christians. So what we're going to be looking at is one of the areas that Alvin Planinga has made the biggest, uh, uh, biggest move in, and that's in epistemology. And specifically, we're going to be looking at reformed epistemology, which is his explanation of how knowledge and Christian belief interact. Now, uh, I'm not going to be referring to reformed epistemology a lot, because that's kind of a technical term. But we should be aware of what it is. And the reason for this is that it's one field of apologetics. So at the beginning of this semester, we discussed about, say, classical apologetics or presuppositionalism. And reformed epistemology is its own particular field of apologetics. And the reason it's called reformed is because Alvin Plantinga draws heavily upon John Calvin and a lot of his work. And the reason epistemology is in there is that's simply a philosopher's jargon for the field of philosophy that refers to knowledge and answers questions like, what is knowledge? How can we know? Can we actually know anything? Does knowledge require certainty? Etc. So with that in mind, we're going to just jump right in, explaining how no uh, Christian belief can be considered knowledge. If I can get this thing to work. Could you flip the slide? Think. Cool. So uh, basically, in order to, uh, the idea that Christian belief can be considered knowledge um, without, say, arguments, but just through the Holy Spirit, may seem a bit foreign to some of us, depending on our theological background. But it's actually got a pretty strong uh, basis in scripture, as we can see here, here from 1 John, where it discusses this idea that basically all Christians have the capacity to know God. Not just believe in him and have a true belief, but to actually know God and to know that he is real. So tonight I'm going to be defending a pretty simple thesis, which is simply that knowledge of Christianity comes from the internal witness of the Holy Spirit instead of from exhaustive apologetical knowledge. So in other words, you just need the Holy Spirit inside of you in order to know that Christianity is true. You don't have to have arguments. Now, why would we think uh, that we need to have arguments? And there are actually some pretty compelling reasons to think that arguments are necessary. So for instance, consider the early church. A lot of the first Christians were slaves who were uneducated, and a lot of them didn't even own a Bible and didn't read a Bible. So really, in this pantheon of religions that they could have chosen from, they just heard the gospel and decided to accept Christianity. I mean, that doesn't seem particularly rational. There's a lot of options they could have chosen from. So how can we call these early Christians belief in God knowledge? Wasn't it just a lucky guess that was hopefully right? Or move forward to today. 
what about that seven-year-old boy who uh, goes up to the altar after a sermon and gives his life to Christ? We could say that's peer pressure. That's the only world he's ever known. So can we really call his belief in God knowledge? Or what about uh, a deathbed conversion where we have an elderly lady who's lived in sin her entire life, but then at the very end she gives her life to Christ? Couldn't we say that that's simply fear? Or what about maybe it's Freud's wishful thinking where she just looks back in her life and is like, wow, that was really depressing. I didn't do anything. I'm going to believe in God because that gives my life meaning. So these are some of the reasons that a lot of people throughout history, both Christians and non-Christians alike, have thought that you need to have some type of argument in order to know that Christianity is true. And I'm going to be showing today that that's false. Rather, we simply need the Holy Spirit. All right, but in order to see that, we first need to have some idea of what knowledge is. Unfortunately, this is a bit of a tricky thing to define, but at a bare minimum, we know that knowledge is true belief plus something else. So right now, none of us can know that I'm wearing a black shirt because I'm not wearing a black shirt. That's impossible to know because it's not true. So in order for something to be considered knowledge, it has to be true. It also has to be a personal belief. I can't know something that y'all believe, but I don't personally believe. So at a bare minimum, knowledge has to be true belief, but it can't just be true belief. So for instance, to use an example Alvin Plantinga uses, consider that there are an even number of stars in the universe, and I just happen to be an individual who, for no particular reason, decides that one of my fundamental convictions is that there's an even number of stars in the universe. Well, I have a true belief, but surely I don't know. I mean, for all I know, there could be an odd number of stars. So the mere presence of a true belief doesn't mean we have knowledge. We need something else, something that makes the belief rational. Now, what this other ingredient in knowledge is has been hotly debated among philosophers, and there's no real solid consensus. But because of that, we're just going to follow Alvin Plantinga's lead and call it warrant. So a person with a warranted true belief possesses knowledge. Now, I'm going to get into the nitty-gritty details of what warrant is in a couple minutes. But for right now, just remember it's the thing that gives uh, a true belief rationality to it. So suppose for a second that, say, astronomers and mathematicians got together and came up with some proof to show that there is an even number of stars in the world. Well, then I would, could have knowledge in my belief in an even number of stars, just because then there would be a reason, there would be a rationale behind it. Oops, wrong direction. OK, so we're going to look now at how people can obtain warrant, how they can obtain this rationale. And there's two main ways that this can occur. They can have sound reasons that requires time and thought. So for example, when we were in high school and did geometry, we were supposed to write proofs. That's a form of sound argument that could give you reasoning. Or an example would be, uh, though it doesn't have to do with geometry, is you know, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. It's a type of logical step-by-step -step process, and it gives us uh, good premises, good conclusions, and we can call that warrant because there's a rationale for our true belief then. Um, and the second way that you can have warrant is through a basic belief. And basic beliefs don't require time and thought. Rather, they are immediate and subconscious. So right now, y'all all believe that you're hearing my voice. None of y'all have an argument for that. But you're all fully rational in believing that you're hearing my voice. And you have warrant. Why? Because it comes from one of your senses. It's an immediate, direct belief. I know that I didn't have anything for breakfast this morning. That was really stupid, but I can remember it. I don't have an argument for that. I just know that that's the case. So it seems that in addition to this argument way of having warrant, we can also have an immediate and subconscious way known as a basic belief. Now, unfortunately, not all basic beliefs are really appropriate. Some basic beliefs are better than others. Some basic beliefs are proper, and other be basic beliefs are improper. 
So uh, properly basic beliefs are beliefs that are rational. As I already said, you know, y'all all believe, basically, that you're hearing my voice because of your senses. Or you're all believing that you're tasting the food right now because you're tasting the food right now. You don't have an argument for that. But it's a properly basic belief. It's a fully rational basic belief. However, you can have basic beliefs that are irrational. These will be improperly basic beliefs. So for instance, when we're driving on the roads, oftentimes we see water in the distance, but we know that that's not real water, rather it's an illusion. So if I form the basic belief there's water there, and I continue to persist in believing that, that's an irrational basic belief. It came from my senses, however, it's irrational because of other things that I know about the world. Namely, that when we see water on the road and it's all sunny outside, it's a mirage and not really water. Another example would be, let's suppose that we went to Dallas and we're going to explore the Texas Rangers and how they made their clothes, which would be a stupid thing to do because they're a lousy baseball team who's lost 90 plus games in the past couple years. But anyways, let's suppose the Texas Rangers have uh, blue uniforms. Let's suppose we were in their garment factory. And when we went inside the garment factory, we realized that, oh, all of the uniforms are red. And we formed the basic beliefs that the uniforms are red. Now, that would be an irrational belief because we know that Texas Ranger uniforms are blue. And furthermore, let's say that we have a sign that says, you know, they're currently on the assembly line under infrared lights. Well, I have the basic belief that the uniforms are red, but it would be improper of me to persist in that belief because I have reasons to believe it's false. So basically, then we have two ways to have warrant. We can have it through sound arguments, or we can have it through properly basic beliefs. Now, to give an example of this kind of in the spiritual realm, I'm going to turn to Marvel and explain how we could have a properly basic belief about something not necessarily directly related to our sense perception of just everyday life. So in uh, the first Doctor Strange movie, Doctor Strange becomes crippled after a pretty famous uh, scientific uh, neuroscience career where he's been doing a lot of surgery. And his hands become very injured. And in an attempt to fix this, he just goes all over the world trying to get somebody who can fix his fingers so he can practice his uh, surgeon skills again. Um, at one point, he walks up to an uh, assembly of people who all practice more or less magic because he believes that they can heal him. However, he's very skeptical of this spiritual realm. And here he declares basically his belief that the only thing in the world is matter, to which the Ancient One responds by pushing him through the multiverse, in which he quickly realizes that, oh, there isn't just a material world, we also have a spiritual world. In other words, he forms a properly basic belief because he experienced the spiritual. He experienced something that went beyond matter. So what I'm going to be arguing today is simply that our experience of Christianity is a properly basic belief. Now, we don't get shoved through the multiverse, but we do have something else happen to us. Uh, that is pretty cool. But before I do that, I'm going to briefly expound a little bit more upon warrant, just because I've been talking about these properly basic and improperly basic beliefs and how that's defined to rationality. So in order to understand warrant, there are four basic requirements. I'm just going to go ahead and say this part of the presentation is a little bit technical. It's not super important if you don't follow it all. It's finals week. Don't worry about it. But if you do get it, great. If you don't, it's not a huge deal. But basically, the requirements for warrant is that your faculties are properly functioning. So if my hand starts thinking, then I can't have warrant because my hand's not supposed to be thinking. That's not its proper function. It'd be cool, but it's not its proper function. We also have to be in a correct environment. So I'm not really going to be seeing things very well if I'm in a dark room and there's no lights. 
right? So our faculties, our cognitive faculties, have to be in the environment in which they're created in order for us to have warrants, as well as functioning properly. They also have to be aimed at true belief. So if the point of my cognitive faculties was not to give me truth, but say survivability, I couldn't have warrant because it wouldn't be aimed at true belief. And these cognitive faculties predominantly have to be successfully aimed at true belief. So this gives us Adam Thinning's definition of warrant, which once again, don't worry if you don't follow along, where he says, put in a nutshell then, a belief has warrant for person S only if that belief is produced in S by cognitive faculties functioning properly, subject to no dysfunction, in a cognitive environment that is appropriate for S's kind of cognitive faculties, according to a design plan that is successfully aimed at truth. So basically, what this means is that if somebody meets these requirements for warrant, either through an argument or through a basic belief, and that basic belief is true, they will have knowledge. And what I'm going to be showing today, whoops, there we go, is that uh, Christian belief can be properly basic. And it can be properly basic because of three things. It can be properly basic because of scripture, the Holy Spirit, and regeneration. And this is kind of where John Calvin comes in, because he uh, puts a huge emphasis on these three things and our ability to know God and to have faith. So basically what Alvin Plantingus thinks is that, say when somebody is reading scripture, they're reading John 1, and they're reading about how Jesus is a member of the Trinity, that they, through the Holy Spirit, can be filled with such a sense of awe that they form the basic belief that God is real. They don't have an argument for it, they just form the basic belief that God is real and that Jesus is the word of God. Another example would be, suppose that you're uh, just committed a big sin, and you're feeling really guilty about it. And you just form the basic belief that there's a God who wants to exact judgment upon you for your sin. Well, that would be a basic belief. Uh, another example would be, uh, say you're at the Grand Canyon, and you're just awed and filled with wonder at what you've been seeing, and you just begin to believe in God. And maybe you think of the psalm that talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, the point of these examples is simply to say that the scripture discusses that we have a sense of the divine within us. We have built in with us kind of a sixth sense. And this sense is something, according to Alvin Plantinga, that it can be triggered and restored through us through scripture, the Holy Spirit, and regeneration, so that we form basic beliefs about God. So these aren't beliefs that we came through through arguments. They're beliefs that we have simply because the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us. So what does this mean? It means that we shouldn't be nearly as focused about arguments as oftentimes we are. What it means is that a five-year-old little boy who has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him can know that God is real just as much as a 90-year-old Adam Plantinga who has written about this for years. And what this means is that when we're experiencing doubts, our first response should not be to go look up a philosophy textbook or a history textbook or whatever. Our first response should be to pray to God and uh, try to experience the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. And here's some verses that kind of illustrate this basic point. We have in 1 Corinthians, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. So this idea that the knowledge of Christianity isn't predicated upon how much you know, it's not predicated upon how well you can do apologetics, it's predicated upon God. And we see in 1 John here, this is how we know, emphasis on know, that we are made in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. So the knowledge of God comes from the spirit. And lastly, this means that when we're faced with doubts, we should be abiding in Christ. We should be praying to Christ. And we should be praying to the Father to fill us with the spirit. As Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. So 
what have we seen today? We've seen that you can have a knowledge of Christian belief if you have a warranted true belief. Uh, so we can have warrant of Christianity in two ways, either through arguments or through basic beliefs. Now, not everyone is familiar with the arguments, so we need a way to say that all Christians can have knowledge, and that comes through basic beliefs, the sixth sense that is triggered within us by the Holy Spirit, by Scripture, and by regeneration. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying arguments are bad. It's totally fine to like arguments. Alvin Plantinga actually has a paper which is entitled 24 or so arguments for the existence of God. He was totally fine with arguments. That's not his point. Rather, his point was that's not where our focus should be. William Lane Craig in his debate with Christopher Hitchens, after presenting several arguments in one of his first speeches, mentions that if we get so hung up on the arguments in light of uh, Alvin Plantinga's idea, then we might actually be cutting ourselves off from the best way that we can know Christianity is true, namely the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. So with that, I'd just like to end, but just leave you with this notion that when you're experiencing doubts, and we all do, don't beat yourself up because of how much you know or how little you know. Rather, focus on Christ. And it's totally fine to explore ideas and to try to come to a better understanding of those doubts, but ultimately, knowledge starts with the Holy Spirit because you're abiding in Christ. Thanks, that's all I have. Thank <laughs> you.